right, y'all. We are we're in Genesis four, and uh, we're going to go ahead and, and get started. Uh, I know that we had several moms who escorted the the kids back, but but they will be back in. So. Pull up 2 Timothy. Before we do Genesis 4, just pull up 2 Timothy, um, whether on your phone or, or in your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I feel like we need to start here to really kind of frame our mind around Genesis 4. I feel like I need to, to kind of set the, set the table real quick. Because you're probably like me whenever you get to genealogy. So I need to start in 2 Timothy. All right, whenever I get to the genealogies... I'm like, oh, such and such beget someone, and this, and there's this really long line, and and you know, you start that one year Bible plan, and then you start getting getting to the begattings, and you're like, oh, like really? Okay, so Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen and seventeen. We're going to start there with this, so that you don't fall into my temptation. Second Timothy three sixteen seventeen, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So it's all breathed out by God, even all the begattings. Okay? question is, what do we do with it? I like uh, Matthew Henry. It's one of the first commentaries that I was given, a Matthew Henry commentary. Um, and I like what he said. So he took 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, and then as he's looking at Genesis 5, which we're about to get to, he says, All Scripture being given by inspiration of God is profitable, though some is more profitable than others. And I was like, that's awesome, good. Because like he's way up there and he's like, look, it's all profitable, just some is, some is more profitable. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Whenever you get to, to all the begattings and the, the sons and the fathers of, still inspired by God, for a purpose, we do, uh, if we go back to the original audience, it does begin to make a lot more sense, right? That's why we, we believe in expository preaching. Expository preaching isn't just moving through Scripture so that we can get something out of it. It's going to Scripture to see who wrote it, to whom did they write it, why did they write it, what was the original intent of it, therefore, how does that shape us today, right? So whenever Moses is writing Genesis, all of that begatting, all of the sons, that, that means something to them, to the young Israelites. Um, I say the young Israelites, to the young nation of Israel as it's forming. This means something. And I'm just going to, this is an easy one. This means something to us today too. There's, a, there's something where we can look at it and we go, oh, okay. All right. That's, thank you, God, for preserving that for us. I, I think that there's some stuff that, that we can glean from this, some great spiritual truth. Also with expository preaching, it should be preached in such a way, whether myself, whether, whether Andy, whoever's up here preaching at the time, that, that you're not sitting out there and you're like, oh, look at what wisdom they have. Where did they get that? Like, that's clever. It should never be that way. What should happen is we open Scripture and we do this together. It should be, oh, that makes sense. Okay. Right? It, our role is to equip the church through the preaching of the word, not to bring you some great profound wisdom that's tweetable and can be put out there on Facebook as a nice little quip. That's not the intention of what we do. What we do is we open scripture, as you should all be doing, and we begin to try to understand what God is saying. And then God has just simply called us to be able to preach and equipped us to be able to preach and teach the word. So 
our goal is not to bring you anything out of left field and, you know, their sudden, oh, man, look at those guys. But it's, okay, that makes sense. And then we, then we, we walk through that. So with that and said, we are going to be in Genesis 4, uh, 17 through, um, 4, 17 through 532. We are not going to be doing a verse-by-verse breakdown of every single person and every single word all throughout chapter 5. Rather, we're going to kind of camp more in um, the end of chapter 4, and then we're going to take a broad look at what's going on in chapter 5. And so, with that said, here we go. All Scripture, breathed out by God. All Scripture, profitable for us so that we may grow in godliness. And so we begin in Genesis 4.17. We're going to go through 5.32 a whole reading. So Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahushal, uh, I'm sorry, Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael. Remember, you just say it with confidence, and nobody knows the difference, okay? <laughs> so Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech had two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the, other, the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah bore Tabal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tabal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. I love easy names. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, or mankind, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he had fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. 
Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the years of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's where we're going to stop. That's enough. Like, that's enough to stop at, okay? Two, two main things, I think, that we can get from, from this narrative. We're going to see the germ of sin, how sin spreads throughout society, and then we're going to look at how God sustains a godly line. Like, we see those two things kind of branch out here. We need this. Because you and I live in a world where everybody's trying to understand why is there so much brokenness? Why are we the way that we are? Why do we struggle with this? And we can look around and we see that from the beginning, from sin's inception, we see that that seed of disobedience that began with Adam and Eve's decision, like it became a vine that began to grow through Cain's sin and his murdering of Abel. And we're going to see that that just continues to bear more and more fruit in society. In fact, if you look at Cain's line in Genesis 4, 17 through 24, they were prospering, by the way. Look at, look at the offspring of Cain. They're doing some pretty amazing things. They are, they're playing the lyre and the pipe, um, the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. I mean, they are prospering as a, as a society and as a civilization, but keep this always in mind, it was completely apart from God. Right? So, so we're going to see, I just want to talk about the germ of sin. Like, what does this brief glimpse give us as a church we need to understand that in what the Puritans used to teach, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. It's not like Adam and Eve sinned in an isolated event and then Cain sinned in an isolated event. No, sin has corrupted and infected God's good creation. One day, it will all be right again. One day, we will be in His presence. He will be with us. We will be with Him, never to part ever again. It will be amazingly wonderful. You will walk in the grass and there will not be stickers. It even says like that all of creation, all the animals will be in complete harmony again. Y'all, we long for that. You know why we long for that? Because that's right. That's natural to God's design. Death and sin are completely unnatural to God's good design. But we need to see that it wasn't just an isolated event, an isolated event, no, you know what Scripture shows us is that the whole heart of man is always bent towards sin. There has to be an intentionality and a, a preservation on God's behalf where He holds this one line in, or I'm sorry, in Genesis 5. We see that God has begun to turn hearts back towards Him. Like for all the waywardness of Cain and his society, there is a worship of Seth and his line. And so God continues to hold that. So that's kind of the framework of today, the germ of sin, how it continues to spread, and the sustaining of a godly line that God gives us. Okay, so with all that said, how did, how did I get from Genesis 4, 17 through 24, to seeing the spread of sin? 
Let's read it one more time, just that, that little shot, that little snapshot. Genesis 4, 17 through 24, Cain knew his wife. Now, this would, have, this would have been another offspring of Adam and Eve, by the way. This is about 130 years um, before Seth is born, right? It says that Adam was 130 years. So there's been some passage of time. It's not like uh, the way we read it, um, we just need to be mindful that it's not necessarily Cain killed Abel, he went to the city, he got married, and here we are. There seems to be a passage of time that's assumed. Okay, so Cain knew his wife. And, and she conceived and bore Enoch. This is not the godly Enoch that we know of later. This is another Enoch. When Cain, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So there's a kind of a... Uh, there's, there's one thing that, they, that begins to prosper there. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So there come your, your music and your arch right there in that society. Zillah bore Tubal Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. That would be more like weapons, not instruments that you play. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, and this will be a hard thing I want us to look at. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. We just, we just got to look at that because that's just weird. Like, I'm not going to lie. You get to that in Genesis 4 and you're drinking your coffee and you're reading and you're like, whoop-de-doo. Like, what does that even mean? I want to look at that. Okay, so y'all, here's what we, we see, the spread of sin. Kind of three big things we can look at with the spread of sin uh, kind of quickly. Cain builds a city where his family, his tribe, his clan, however you want to do it. He builds a city where he can live and thrive apart from the Lord. Like that's what happens. He's been driven from the presence of the Lord. And what did God say? You will always wander. That was, his, that was part of his punishment. You will wander. You will never rest. And you know what Cain does? absolute complete disobedience even to the judgment on him he's like i'm not going to wonder i'm going to plant a city and this city will be where i live and so they plant a city verse 17 cain knew his wife she conceived and bore enoch when he built a city he called the name of the city after the name of his son enoch do y'all remember why cain is in this city though and do you remember his response to god we know that that cain killed abel we know that god cast him out and that um and that he said, your judgment is, is this. And what was Cain's heart? Cain's heart never showed any act of repentance or remorse. He did not care that he had offended a majestic or a holy God. Instead, he focused on, well, you're about to make my life a lot harder. And what if people who find me kill me just like I did Abel? Like I, That's not fair, basically. Remember, the sinner's heart is always for themselves. It's never for God. And so Cain... Uh, we see no act of repentance. Rather, we see his willful determination to not only live in this world, but to build in this world. And so he, make, he has a city. And his son's name, Enoch, means initiation. And so no doubt we can read this. And here is the initiation of Cain's line. And he has this city that has been rooted in his sinfulness, that's going to grow in sin. And in case you think I'm stretching it too far, look at number two. Lamech takes how many wives? Two wives, the first act of polygamy in the Bible, right? So Lamech breaks God's good design for marriage and commits the first act of polygamy. I saw, I was looking at, I always look at many commentaries just trying to study. 
And what I thought was really interesting that I honestly never pieced together, but all the patriarchs that we see, Genesis 4 through the end of Genesis 5, if you do the timelines, Adam was, they were all living uh, at the time that Adam was living as well, that the way that their lives uh, overlapped. So these long lives overlap. So they are, Cain knows God. Lamech knows of God. Like they know who this holy God is. And yet, and, and they know, they have to know all the teachings. So this is just Lamech breaking God's design for marriage. He takes two wives in verse 19. The name of one was Ada. The name of the other was Zillah. If God's design for marriage is Genesis 2, 24, where it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, then Lamech disobeys God's command and he takes two wives. Like his grandfather Cain, because that's who this is, right? There was Cain and then there was Enoch and now there's Lamech. And Lamech, just like his grandfather, is going to live by his own passion, his own desires, his own designs. That's going to be what begins to fill this city. So we're going to see this kind of grow more and more. And then look at Lamech. Look at 23 through 24. I'm not going to lie. Seriously, I got to it. I'm like, what do you do with that? I mean, like, what's he really saying? And if you kind of push into it, especially in verse 24, then it kind of starts to make a little bit more sense. Let me read it one more time. Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, I don't think we always read passages where we go, where we like understand it, and we go, oh, that's amazing. Rather, we, we need to kind of keep pushing in because what it seems like to me is it seems like a, <clears throat> excuse me, a passage of self-defense. This guy hurt me. I struck him back and killed him. So I kind of go, okay, like, why is it there? But, but as you read, you actually start to understand the heart of what's behind it in, in verse 24. Look at that. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Like, do you remember what Cain's revenge was? Like, don't just take it for granted. That's right. They're like, what was Cain's revenge that he's referring to? Because that actually makes this a very boastful proud, arrogant proclamation. So I'm going to go back, Genesis 4, so we're in the same chapter, 13 through 15. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to start with 13, and we're going to look at 15. So Genesis 4, 13 through 15. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In verse 15, this is, this is Cain's quote, revenge. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. All right, so Cain's revenge is that God's basically going to protect Cain so that nobody kills Cain. That's Cain's revenge. So Lamech is actually boasting in this. If you put it all together, I've killed a man because he wounded me. If Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold, I'm going to be avenged 77-fold. God's going to protect me even more because I'm Cain's offspring. And Cain killed an innocent man. I killed someone who hurt me. But you wives of Lamech, you don't have to worry because if he put, if he was going to avenge sevenfold, he's going to avenge me 77-fold. This is not just like, uh, don't worry, wives, God's going to protect us. This is, look what I've done and have no fear. Like, it's a boastful, arrogant proclamation. Now, we need to be careful. We have to be careful because the wisdom of the world says that makes total sense that if somebody hurts you, I mean, you strike them back. And this makes sense to us. 
You know what God's Word says. God's Word says that vengeance is mine and recompense. So like, just to pause real quick. You and I are absolutely going to be done wrong. We're going we're gonna to be struck. We're going to be slandered. We're going to be ridiculed. We're going to be mocked. We're going to have people who cheat us. We're going to have people who cut us off. I had a moment this week where um, I was at the ball field, and I'm not going to even like communicate the whole thing because it would just be like God's humoristic sovereignty that I would share this example, and then the, that person will somehow hear of this example and be like, oh, that was my man. I'm, that's not my heart. And then I'm going to be like humble because I was so judgmental in that moment. But there was a moment at the ball field where I was going this way and someone was going this way. I did not intentionally cut them off. And yet the remark that came back to me was, though I had done this so intentionally and selfishly. And I left that moment, like I had that moment where I paused and I'm like, okay, okay. My name is not that. My name is Ricky Massingale and it's nice to meet you. And the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Vengeance is his. Like I just so wanted to do that in my flesh. So to the point where as I got to Chas, who's sitting over here, she looked at me, and she had the weirdest look, and she didn't say anything. Like, we talked for a little bit later that evening. I'm like, by the way, i got to tell you what happened um, at the ball field. So, like, I'm just kind of confessing that I flushed out here. She's like, oh, I was wondering what was happening because, like, it was all over your face, and I never see you like that. I was like, oh, I was mad. Um, and I don't normally get that mad. I'm a nice, happy guy. I'm forgiving. But when you say that in that tone of voice, and my heart's intent was not, and you're all like, what happened? What ha-? And you would be so disappointed if I told you the real story. You're like, really? That's what you got mad about? It's because I'm proud and arrogant. Like, my pride was offended in that moment. So there's me. I'm telling you, you will be offended. You will be slandered. You will be mocked. People will do you wrong intentionally, and they will rejoice in it. They will cheat you. And vengeance is mine, is what the Lord says, and recompense. Everything that goes with revenge is his. The question is, do we actually trust him or not? Okay? That's what Lamech's heart should have been. Now, granted, we have that in Deuteronomy 32, 35. Deuteronomy had not been written yet, but Lamech knew of the Lord. He just didn't care. We see that in how he treats his marriage. We see that in Cain. They know the Lord. They know of the Lord. Cain walked with the Lord, yet they don't care about his decrees. They care about themselves and how they operate. So I just want to be careful. The wisdom of the world says, oh, he struck you. You struck back. You you killed him. That kind of makes sense. Just remember that the wisdom of the world always makes sense to the world, but it should not make sense to us. we, We don't connect with the world anymore. We were made now to not fit with the world. Here's what Romans 12, 19 tells us today. So brothers and sisters in Christ, do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And all vengeance is paid. All vengeance was going to be repaid back to us, and it has been repaid. But for Christians, vengeance has been poured out on Christ and not back on us. Praise the Lord that he absorbed the wrath that was preserved for us. But for someone who's not a Christian, then there is the future hope that vengeance will be paid either on the back of Christ or they will face it. But vengeance is always paid. The question is not, is it? Because look, 
I will repay, says the Lord. He either speaks truth or he speaks lies. We have to decide, do we trust the Lord? Okay, is vengeance his? Yes, it is. Then we need to learn how to graciously step back. It's all a matter of trust on our part, not a matter of actuality on God's. He will have vengeance. And it says that we leave room for God's wrath. In other words, we, we can be offended and we say, Lord, okay, you said I could trust you. And I do. And the gap between that offense and where God deals with that person, that's God's doing. The wrath will either be upon them or it's been placed upon the back of Jesus. We don't know. We don't have to know. All we know is that our God never lies and he's for us. So, so Romans 12, 19 helps me most times, but not all the time, to remember that I need to trust the Lord more. But Lamech kills a man, whether it's in self-defense or not, we actually don't know all those details. I mean, this could have just been a guy who is full of his own passion, and the guy kind of shoves him, and so he decides to act. We don't know if it was minor. We don't know if it was major. We just know that he says, don't worry. If he was going to protect Cain, he's going to protect us even more, and he's actually kind of boasting in that. I think that Jeremiah 8:12, totally written in a different context, but I think that it can still apply to Lamech. This is one of those times in looking at what Lamech says, it is good to have commentaries. It's good to see how scholars have wrestled with this to understand it more fully. But I think Jeremiah 8.12 applies to Lamech as well. God's word says, Are they ashamed of the abomination that they have committed? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. And so they will fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord. Do y'all know me? If we could put that one on a coffee cup, that's a cool verse to have out there for people to just pay attention to. But I think that's what we see uh, in Lamech. Is he ashamed of the abomination he has committed? He murdered. Like he murdered for crying out loud. No. There's no shame at all is what it seems. They don't even know how to blush is what God's word says. He just seems to be boasting in this and it says that they will fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord. You know what happens to Lamech and his whole line? They die in the flood. They perish in the flood. God's wrath is just like he, he has recompense. He has vengeance. He will handle and settle all accounts. Our job is not that. Our job, our responsibility, our role, our great duty is that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, God making his appeal to the world through us. So you know what we are? We are peacemakers. We make peace, we encourage peace, we love peace. Why? Because blessed are the peacemakers for they are called children of God. So we need to be careful whenever we hear worldly wisdom. Lamech's advice makes total sense to me. Absolutely, you struck back until I line that out with Christ. Okay. So what's all this come down to before we move on to point two? That while God allowed Cain's descendants to prosper, because we see them growing, they're growing in the arts, they're growing in lifestyle, they, uh, it's, a, it's an ungodly civilization. This is all settled out of the presence of God. There's no goodness there. God has cast them out. He told Cain, you shall wander. And Cain says, okay, then I'm going to wander right over there. I'm going to land, uh, settle in the land of Nod, which means wandering. And so I'm going to settle over there until I have a son. I'm going to go plant my own city, and I'm not going to wander. I'm going to stake my claim. right? So that is all rooted in Cain's determination to live his life as he wants to live it. And we see that it filters through his generations. 
God's word continuously broken. What it all really comes down to, y'all, is when we look at the world today, uh, t- take a look at what happens in Cain society. There's a lot of good that we see. I'm not against music. I love music. I'm not against uh, weapons. I'm not going to lie. I think swords and knives look really, really cool. All right? I'm not against that. I'm not, I'm not against the things that we see in civilization, yet they, in his civilization, they were rooted in the wrong heart's intent. But they begin to prosper, but they're doing it apart from God. If you and I want to be very cognizant of what's going on, then we kind of look at this, and you know why Cain planted a city? Because he would find his comfort and salvation in a city and in civilization because he would not have it in God. You and I have the exact same temptations before us today, though our name is not Cain or Lamech or Zillah or Nama or whatever, which... I think Methushael and Mahalalel, cool names by the way, but Mahalalel, Massengale, I don't think Chats is going to go for it. But I think, think that if we look back and we kind of go through all this, the same temptations that were before them then are the same temptations that are before us today. The heart of civilization, y'all, is a pursuit of self and its own satisfaction. It cares not for us. It doesn't care about God. We live in a sinful civilization today. Society is not bent towards godliness. It's bent towards pleasing self and finding self-satisfaction in who we are. Make your name, boast who you are, erect statues of men who have done great things. No, cry out to the Lord and humbly say, who are we but what you've made us? But you and I live in the same kind of situation that that was before them. But sinners are not going to seek a Savior. The Savior sought us out. They're going to seek out sin. You and I, we don't fit here anymore. Listen to this, John 2. Actually, you need to turn to John 2. John 2. Actually, no, I think this is probably going to be like 2 John, to be quite honest. It's going to be 1st or 2nd John. Y'all are going to have to get me there. Let's try out a 1st John chapter 2. We got like four Johns to pick from here. We're going to find the right one. I just realized my note is not complete here. 1st John chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. If that's not it, then... We're going to flip to 2 John, and it's 1 John. Okay, thank you. I always love it whenever I'm up here and I'm preaching, and then you're all looking at me like, and you're just shaking your head. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. Here's what you and I need. Written to believers, to those who say they love the Lord, it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Like, do not love the world or anything, anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, these things are radical. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Three categories, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. That's all encompassing. All that is in the world is not from the Father. It's from the world. Like, we need to remember that. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Flip, uh, flip back just a little bit, James 4, 4. James 4, 4. This one also warns us. James 4, 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Is what ESV says. Friendship with the world, hostility with God. The The inverse of that would be true. 
Friendship with God is hostility towards the world. But it goes on. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever chooses to be a friend of the world renders himself an enemy of God. How comfortable are we in this world? I would like to believe that if we were to step into Cain's city of Enoch, that we would feel increasingly more and more uncomfortable as we learned and felt the tenor of the heartbeat of that city. But I'm not going to lie. We are prone to wonder, prone to leave the one we love, prone to become friends with the world. It's just our heart has a natural gravitation back towards sin and temptation. Matthew 10, 22, and then we're going to move on to point two. But, but I do want you to turn there, Matthew 10, 22. This is Jesus speaking to us. In 10.22, Jesus says, If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And just kind of let that set in. You are not of the world. If you did, the world would love you, but the world hates you because you're not of the world. Now, we don't fit here because we don't belong here. We don't fit anymore. God did a radical change in our lives and, and the, sinful, the sinfulness of society. And we could try to be really gracious and be like, no, no, I mean, I don't think it's like utterly, totally sinful. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty sinful. Like there's a lot of TV that we don't watch anymore because of the messages that underlie it. You start having a conversation with people and you realize that their worldview doesn't match our worldview. It's not because we are intellectually here and they're intellectually here. It's not because we don't fit anymore. We used to. We're aliens here anymore. We're sojourners. We're a priesthood to the world. We are just completely, totally different. We don't fit because we don't belong, and yet God left us here so that we could share His gospel. That's why we're still here, so that we can tell others of the goodness of God because they don't know. So we got to go. But, but if you're ever wondering, gosh, why, why does the world seem to celebrate this? Because it's rooted in sin now. Like, that's scriptural. Sin is all about us, and people sin because they're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You don't have to teach a baby to be, to be jealous and envious and to be greedy. They just naturally are. They're born into that, and then we train them um, in godliness out of that. Okay, so that's a totally different sermon, but the world functions in a certain way, and we see how the world begins to function apart from God, and that's what starts to happen. Sin begins to spread. Okay, now the seed of salvation. This is just cool to me. Seed of salvation, we are not going to read Genesis 4, 25 through 532 again. I got through the names one time. I think that that's pretty good. We're going to celebrate that one for Father's Day, okay? But the other side is this. We have heard it, and, and there's kind of this broad sweep uh, of genealogy. I do want us to look at 425 through 26. So let's look at that. Genesis 4, 25 through 26, right after we see Cain and his descendants and the spread of sin, and Adam, like so over here, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And Oh, this is cool. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Like, do you, 
We got to get there. Like there's Adam and Eve in perfect communion with God. God walks in the garden. They have fellowship with him. And then through their disobedience, because it's not just Eve's disobedience, it's their disobedience. It says she gave to the man the apple because he was with her. Okay, so they sin. And now there's a sudden disconnect between them and God. And you know what that feels like. You know what it's like to be near the Lord. And then you know what it's like to have that fissure begin whenever we begin to sin. And if you can imagine that fellowship widening. And so there's Adam and Eve. They're literally cast out of the Garden of Eden. And so they are over here. Abel is dead. Cain has departed. They're here. We are told that they have many other sons and daughters, but they're here. But it's at the time of Seth. So like in this gap, it's, there's this longing, there's this separation. But at the time when Seth is born, then people begin to call upon the name of the Lord again. It just means that they begin to worship again. Like have you ever been like so far from God, like you feel that chasm and then either in the privacy of prayer or in a service, like you feel that goodness and you feel that closeness again. And it's just good. Like you have no words. It's just a sweetness in your spirit whenever you have fellowship again. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And I'm just going to say praise God, because what we saw is that every intent was away from him. So. I love this. Like, I get excited about the seed of salvation. I've never gotten more excited about genealogy, probably, than I did as I was reading this. Because against the dark backdrop of Cain and and sin emerging in so many different ways and a waywardness away from God, then comes the light that is dawning in Seth's line. Right? The darkest nights are always bearable because we see the sun rising. We see the line on the horizon. The day is coming. I think that that's why Psalm 23 resonates so well with us. Because the days, the dark days, the, the afflictions, they're common to us. We walk through them. But Psalm 23 reminds us that the darkest valley, even the valley of death, we have no fear. Why? Because the shepherd is with us. And when the shepherd is with us, then there is light. Like Psalm 23 reminds us that in the darkness there is light. And scripture shows us again and again that God's holiness and his majesty always give us light. And so in a world that has been broken now by sin and sin is growing over here, we are reminded that there is still light dawning in the darkness. And that only happens because God sustains the godly. They wake up to a brand new day. And we also know what scripture also says is that our hearts are in the hand of God. And that's, and that's like a stream of water. So you know why people began to call upon the name of the Lord? Because they were enlightened? No, but because of God's gracious goodness that he would awaken their hearts to it. So against the darkness and the sin that's spreading, now here comes Seth's line. And this is really, really cool to me. Go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I'm like, okay, this is really cool what God does. Y'all don't always seem to think it's as cool as I feel in my heart, but I know that in your heart you're rejoicing. I get it. But I was reminded to look at Luke chapter 3. We are not going to read Luke chapter 3, like verse 1, all the way to the end. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to turn there. We are going to begin... In verse 1, then we're going to fast forward through this. Luke chapter 3. This is the genealogy of Christ. By the way, anyone who denies that Christ walked the earth has to willingly and intentionally... That is not Luke 3. I don't... Oh, there. Yeah, it is. Luke 3, verse 23. We have to deny what other historians, even contemporary historians, were writing about Jesus. He absolutely walked the earth. What they deny is his lordship. Luke chapter 23. Look at verse 23 first. 
Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Method. Okay, we're going to look. There's all those sons of, sons of, sons of, sons of. Go all the way down to verse 36. So what they're doing is they started with, uh, Luke started with Jesus, and he began to move backwards, and we're in verse 36. The son of Canaan, the son of Aphraxed, yep, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Like from beginning to end, God has always sustained a godly line. And it's through the line of Seth, we see it lined out right there, it's through the line of Seth that our Redeemer would come. All of the salvation that people were looking forward to and that we look back at, all of Jesus Christ through the line of Seth that God sustained. So as Canaan's city is growing, as sin is spreading, then so is the line that will begin to bring us the Savior. Like it's through Seth that we're going to get Noah. And it's through Noah that we will have our Redeemer. I just think that's pretty amazing. I think that that's pretty cool. I mean, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to sustain a godly line in that way. But from beginning, from Adam to Seth, to Noah, to David, to Christ. God has sustained a godly line from which his Redeemer would come. For all the wickedness that we see spread through Cain, there is great grace that God is giving through Seth. People are beginning to call upon the name of the Lord. I want to look at Enoch um, here in just, uh, just one second. But that, that Genesis 4.26, if it were me, like I would have that underlined. I would look back at that and I would be saying, praise God. Praise God that he would call this out in us at that time when darkness has been all around. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You know what that means? God was not done with his sinfully corrupted creation. He wasn't done. And he's still not done. Okay, y'all, there's a common pattern we're not going to break down. I'm just going to kind of give it to you. And the genealogy is just like a wide sweep. And then I want to look at Enoch. And then we're, we're going to kind of pull this to a close. You see the patriarch's name. Right? You see the patriarch's name. The age of the patriarch when he had the firstborn. The patriarch's um, firstborn son. The statement that there were many sons and daughters. This is how the earth is filled. And then the final statement, and he died. That reminds us that we are but dust. The patriarchs, though they lived 969 years or less, they still died. Except for Enoch. That's the one we got to look at. Look at Enoch. Genesis 4, 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, who will be the oldest person to ever walk the earth. He fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, and then there's like a comma, for God took him. The full reading is, for he was not found. Like, he's just gone. Like, Enoch walked with God, and instead of dying, like the rest of everything says, every one of them, and he died, 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 and he was not found, for God took him. And he died... And he died. Enoch did not die. That's amazing. It's one of those rare moments when God does not let death touch one of his servants. It's, it's rare. Like, I, I truly believe that, that I will be laid to rest in this world. It's just, though it's unnatural to God's original design, it's just the common course of the world. I will die. I will be laid to rest 
From dust I came, to dust I will return. Not Enoch. You know why? Because he walked with the Lord. Like unhindered. Not as I walk, but in this radical way that I can't even begin to comprehend. It must have been such a deep fellowship. Moses says, you know, we sing that first first song, show me your glory. Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory. Make your face shine upon me. And God said, I want to put you in the cleft of a rock because you can only look at my backside. And that's going to be pushing your limits pretty far too, to the degree that Moses' face, whenever he would commune with God, he would radiate. He would reflect the glory of God. Like, I don't know how Enoch walked with God, but he must have walked so incredibly closely that it was radically different than everything else in all of creation. And so sweet was that, that God would say to him, come on, and he just doesn't die. We don't know how. We don't know what the walk looked like. We just know that he walked with God, and it was a radically different life. Y'all, if, I just wonder, if, what if we still determined to live in such a, a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying way? That, that if, and we did that privately, we did it publicly, that we in the world would begin to taste of what Enoch had. Like we live radical whenever we spend 30 minutes in the Bible. Whenever we pray for 45 minutes or for an hour, some of us for 45 seconds because that's all we got. Like we have those moments whenever we're like, oh, we're getting there. Enoch wasn't getting there. Enoch was on a completely different level. We know that, that Elijah was caught up in a chariot of fire. We know that Elijah didn't taste death. But you know what? God didn't spare his own son. He tasted death. He suffered. He bled. He died. He was spit upon. He was beaten. He was mocked. His beard was plucked. Thorns were slammed on his head. God's son tasted death in the most graphic, horrific way so that we could gather here today and learn more of the goodness of God. And he gives us Enoch. And he says, look, this is Enoch, and he didn't taste death. You and I are probably going to taste death. But it may be, too, that the Lord returns and we don't taste death. It may be that Enoch points us to that great moment whenever our Lord returns and we are suddenly with him and we don't taste death anymore. We don't know. But I do want us to, to consider this. I pray that you and I, and, and all the church, wherever they're gathered this morning, anyone who calls upon the name, I pray that we would become so captivated by the grandeur and the majesty and the beauty of God that we would live such radically different lives that the world would look at us and say, that's something different. If there is a holy God, then that's got to be what it begins to look like to follow after him. But we've taken the holiness and the grandeur of God and we've brought it down so that we can live comfortably as we want in a society that cares nothing about us except indulging in its own sin. But if we would have be so captivated by that, and if we would quit living for this world and live for the next world, then Christ would be exalted. God would be magnified. We would live radically different lives. And therefore, we would be great ambassadors for Christ. Enoch must have lived in such a way that, that reflects what Paul said. Paul says that, that, that we should live in such a way that if Christ's body were found, if he were found not to be resurrected, then we should be a people to be most pitied. Just simply means that, that if Christ were not resurrected, if, by the way, if we turned on the news today, they found, the, they found Christ's body in a tomb. It had been hidden. They found out that this was Jesus Christ. We found out that everything was fake. God's word says through Paul in Corinthians that we should live in such a way that if that were to occur, people would say, oh man, and they gave like their whole life. 
everything about who they are was rooted in that. And now it's all been like brought to delight and it's a sham. I pity them because everything of all that they are, that's what God's word says we should do. Our lives in Christ should be living to the degree that we are pitied if they find Christ's body not to be resurrected. But they won't. They won't. He has been resurrected. So what is Ricky's problem? What is my disconnect? The disconnect is within me. I'm not captivated with who he is. I look at who he is. I'm drawn to who he is. But what begins to happen whenever I'm captivated by all that he is and none of this matters anymore except seeing his throne one day, every sin stripped from me, every hindrance pulled away from me, we begin to live such radically different lives. And you and I know people like that and we're drawn to them and we're amazed by people like that. And that's who Enoch was in his generation. He had to be walking in such a way that God was so honored that he wouldn't even let death touch him may we be like that but even if we were even if I somehow had that kind of passion I still believe that I'm probably going to be laid to rest in this earth so goes on I don't know if you noticed but there's parallels between the genealogies Cain has a Lamech who boasts in this his pride and his arrogance. And then, and then um, uh, Seth has a Lamech also. And, and there's real quick differences. Um, Lamech boasts in his sinfulness. Lamech believes that God is, that God is sending some comfort. Right? Noah is the coming comfort. He's the, he's the one who's going to relieve him. Uh, in the offspring of Cain, we see the spread of sin in the world. Through Seth's Lamech, we see the hope of redemption and the judgment of sin. Uh, as I've already stated, it's going to come through Seth, through Enoch, through Lamech, through Noah, and then we have our Savior who would come. Like God in His grace, y'all. We sing today because He gave another offspring to Adam and Eve. He gave Seth. He didn't have to. Seth was born not because of biology. Seth was born because God commands all life. And so here comes Seth, and here goes the godly line, and he sustains it to the Savior by which we are now If we say that we are sons of Abraham, we are in line with sons of Seth. All right, so what do we do with all this, right? Sometimes you do expository sermon, you're like, okay, I got all that, now what do I do with it? I think two things. Y'all, we should pray with such intentionality that, that God shows us the tendencies that we have towards sin in this fallen world. We need to recognize that we live in a fallen world. God, show us our sin so that we can forsake it. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Lord, help me not to be conformed. Help me be transformed so that I can know the will of God. Without transformation, you will not know the will of God. So, I think we need to pray with such intentionality, like, God, show me, like, I'm ready for a holy war for the sake of your throne. Show me my sin and teach me to walk in your ways. We saw Cain's civilization and the spread of sin. Look around, y'all. We are not a society that pursues God. We're a church that's been made a church by the blood of Christ. We desire God. The rest of the world doesn't. And yet the rest of the world is all around us. We are tempted to sin. Absolutely. 
So may we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Number two, I think that we should pray with such gratitude. We should read passages like this and know they're weird for us. God, thank you. Thank you that you would sustain, that you would sustain a godly line that reaches to us in this very room even now. You know why you even want to sing? Not because it's a catchy song. Like you want to sing because God is real in your life. God has transformed you into something new because God has reached you through the blood of Christ. Like you sing unnaturally of a God that you cannot see because of his great grace. Like we just need to learn how to pray and say, God, thank you. Like just thank you that you would sustain us even until now. You awoke again, scripture says, because he sustains you. You will lie down and rest and you will wake again because he sustains you. In Seth, through Christ, to today. That's what we see is the beginning of that grace towards us. Y'all, let's pray and let's sing a song of reflection of, a, of just those two things or whatever it is that God's doing in your life. But my prayer is that this isn't just a scholarly activity we do, but we look at this and here's God's word and we just want to understand it more so that we can know more of God. So God, we come to you. Lord, help me Help me to know the sin of my heart. You told Cain that that sin was creeping so near and its desire was against him. But he could could overcome it. He could master it. Lord, your word also tells us that the devil uh, prowls around seeking someone to devour. God, would you just protect us? But Lord, would you show us the sin that creeps so near us? And Lord, would you fight for us what we cannot Lord, may we never be comfortable in this world. It shouldn't make sense to us. But Lord, it does. Please renew our minds and show us the temptation that's near us. And God, I do say thank you. Maybe maybe it was obvious to so many people throughout, throughout churches and today. But Lord, just to be amazed by the fact that you would continue to, to sustain us people who were apart from you, who were enemies and children of wrath. And yet you said, no more, you are mine. Go and sin no more. Lord, thank you for your grace. We see it in Seth. We see it in Noah. We see it throughout the ages. May we never grow old through the good grace you give us. Lord, we love you and praise on your son's holy name. Amen.